This episode is brought to you by Global X ETFs. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange traded funds with Global X ETFs. Exchange traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. Global X specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. For years, Carlos Ghosn was a beloved figure and superstar CEO in Japan. But over the last two years, that's changed. And just over a week ago, Carlos Ghosn fled Japan, smuggled out of the country in a box. You know, it's like James Bond, it's like Ocean's Eleven. I mean, pick whatever film scenario you want to compare it to. Our colleague Nick Kostov covers business, and he's been following the Carlos Ghosn story. It's just a wild, wild story. Basically, what we've got right here is someone who was, for the longest time, one of the most successful business managers in the world, who then became a prisoner and who's now turned himself into an international fugitive. All this in the space of a year. Today on the show, the escape of Carlos Ghosn. How a titan in the auto industry went from a globe-trotting executive to an international fugitive. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. And I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Tuesday, January 7th. At 2.30 p.m., Carlos Ghosn essentially leaves his house in Tokyo, and he was under surveillance, so there was a camera trained on the front door of his flat. But Japan does not have an electronic tagging system, so he had no electronic tag. He just walks straight out the front door. To piece together exactly how Ghosn got out of Japan on the afternoon of December 29th, Nick and other journal reporters have been talking to people who were familiar with Ghosn's escape plan and to investigators who are now looking into it. Shortly afterwards, he meets two foreign men and then they essentially get the bullet train to Osaka. And once they're in Osaka, they go into a hotel nearby At some point, Carlos Ghosn just gets into a box for audio equipment or concert equipment, and it's got wheels to make it easy to move around. It's got holes so he can breathe. And this box uh, inside which is is Carlos Ghosn ends up on a private jet. So they put him in this giant box that's used for audio equipment that had (laughs) holes drilled in the bottom of it so he could breathe. And then they brought Carlos Ghosn into the Osaka airport as if he were a piece of luggage. Yeah, I mean, that's the idea. The box is so big, it's not going to fit in through scanning equipment. You know, only a small bag can fit through that. So usually what you're supposed to have is is an employee open the box and look through. But we're told that at that airport on the private jet side, that hardly ever happened. The, The terrorism risk for these private jets is apparently lower. So people don't really check the luggage as much as they should. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he was he was wheeled, uh, <laughs> the box was wheeled and then, and then brought onto the plane and it was essentially wedged at the back of the plane. Where he presumably got out and had a comfortable 12-hour flight. Yeah, what we're hearing is he didn't actually spend the entire flight in the box. 
So Carlos Ghosn gets on a plane bound for Turkey, and he's ultimately trying to get to his home country of Lebanon. Right. Right. So what happens when he lands in Turkey? So he, he switches planes. So there's a second plane, a second private jet, which is about 100 yards down the runway. So he makes it in the rain from one plane to another. And then he gets a second private jet from Turkey to Lebanon, which is actually not that far. Mm-hmm. So he arrives in Lebanon. We know that he then spent New Year's Eve at a friend's house. We know that they drank some wine, they had some dinner. And actually his wife texts me from that party essentially saying, Happy New Year, we're so happy. And she said that getting her husband back was the best gift of her life. And it was a pricey gift. According to sources, Carlos Ghosn's daring escape cost him millions of dollars. And that's on top of the nearly $14 million of bail that he left behind in Japan. Ghosn's departure from Japan in a box was a dramatic reversal from the way he entered the country two decades ago. When he arrived, he was heralded as a visionary based on the work he'd done in France. In 1996, in his early 40s, Ghosn was hired to be the number two executive at the French car manufacturer Renault, And pretty quickly, he earned himself a reputation. He closed a factory, and this was completely, you know, unusual at Renault. And so the unions kind of were up in arms. It was front-page news in France at the time. And so he got the nickname Le Cost Killer. Le le Cost Killer meaning the cost killer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But it's it's stuck with him ever since. And which he doesn't like, by the way. He may not have liked being called Le Cost Killer, But Ghosn did believe in this sort of hard-nosed management style because he saw results from it. Renault was doing okay but not great at the time, and he really put him on a strong footing. He cut costs way more than anybody thought he would be able to, and he had great results. Renault decided to try and build on its success by expanding across the globe. It took a gamble and purchased nearly 40% of the Japanese carmaker Nissan in 1999. At the time, Nissan was on the brink of bankruptcy and needed Renault's cash. Renault became the biggest shareholder in Nissan. The companies didn't merge, but they created a formal partnership to buy auto parts and share technology. And as part of this partnership, Ghosn was dispatched to Japan where he used his cost-killer approach to help turn Nissan around. And how did Carlos Ghosn do in Japan? Well, he basically broke almost every taboo in Japan at the time. He cut jobs... He closed plants. Um, he teared down ties to, to certain business groups that had worked with Nissan for years. And he bought a very Western style of management. As Ghosn worked to boost Nissan's bottom line, he earned himself another nickname. He was called a destroyer at one shareholder meeting. Here's Ghosn in an interview a few years ago describing that time. And I had a big advantage arriving to Japan. I didn't speak Japanese. I didn't understand Japanese, which means I was being heavily criticized, but I didn't understand it. <laughs> Part of this pushback also came from the fact that, as a Lebanese citizen, he was considered an outsider. And Nissan was the pride of Japan. The name actually translates to Japan industry. But Ghosn managed to return Nissan to profitability and won his critics over. It wasn't long before Ghosn became Nissan's CEO. 
I mean, he was a hero in Japan for some time. He he basically saved Nissan. Nissan, a real icon over there. Hmm. You know, there were comic books made after him. There were there were books written about his management style. Comic books? Yeah, people tried to copy him. People copied his his dress sense. Started coming to work dressed like Carlos Ghosn. Um, so yes, he was extremely respected. From there, Ghosn's profile continued to rise. In 2005, he also became the CEO of Renault back in France making him the head of two car companies. Ghosn split his time between France and Japan, trying to run both automakers at once. But with Nissan's business back on track, there were some new tensions. Nissan felt Renault was constantly pushing things on them. Uh, Renault felt that Nissan was never listening to them. It caused a lot of aggravation. And what are some examples of that tension? So... Renault did want the engineering departments to work more closely together. Nissan felt it had a superior engineering department, and therefore, why waste time working with Renault? Nissan also felt that it made cars for the Asian market and the US market, and it didn't want to waste time making cars for the European market with Renault. Hmm. So it was always hard um, to get those two companies to work together and to cooperate. And... Carlos Ghosn spent much of his time uh, listening to the French complaining about the Japanese or listening to the Japanese complaining about the French and trying to get them to work through their differences and, and to work together. In the process of trying to keep these two companies together in their alliance, Ghosn grew extremely wealthy. At the peak of his powers, he was making tens of millions of dollars per year. He was flying around in uh, a fleet of private jets. He had large houses in Beirut, uh, Brazil, Paris, uh, Tokyo, Amsterdam. He was living an extraordinarily lavish lifestyle. But as Ghosn tried to persuade the two companies to cooperate, the global nature of his work created problems. For one, his subordinates felt like he was absent as he split his time between two companies on two continents. And his pay package was another issue. In 2009, his role at Nissan earned him $15 million. That's comparable with auto CEOs in the U.S., but it's extremely high by Japanese standards. The issue of his pay package came to a head in 2010. And that's when Carlos Ghosn's problems really began. One thing which is really key is the moment when Japanese law changed and essentially said that the executives have to disclose their compensation. Hmm. Because before he was making a ton of money, right, in 2009, and he suddenly has to disclose how much money he's making and he's worried about a public relations backlash. In Japan, the, the culture is very much that that's far too much. People do not get paid as much as Carlos Ghosn was getting paid. So... He was making more than the eight next executives at Nissan. Combined. Combined, exactly, um, per wow. year. So when Japanese law changed and it became clear that he would have to disclose his income, he actually asked uh, Nissan to reduce that so that he wouldn't have a public relations backlash and to defer a large part of his income for after he retires. That year, Ghosn allegedly asked Nissan to postpone payment of nearly $2 million so that he could keep his publicly disclosed salary lower while boosting his retirement payout. According to a person familiar with investigations into this, this practice of deferring income continued for years, adding up to tens of millions of dollars. But only a handful of people at the company knew about it. Until 2018, 
when Goen's balancing act between Nissan in Japan and Renault in France reached a breaking point. In early 2018, Carlos Ghosn is coming to the end of his term as CEO of Renault, and France asks him to stay on for another five-year term. And France, again, which is Renault's largest shareholder, the French state says that as part of his new mandate to carry on as CEO, he needs to make the alliance irreversible. Hmm which the Japanese of Nissan interpret to mean he needs to merge the companies. And indeed, at that point, Carlos Ghosn, who has been working on, on a merger plan for, for some years, he starts to accelerate this plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's leaks to the press about Carlos Ghosn working on a merger, and this greatly worries the Japanese. Why does it worry the Japanese? So basically, it, it worries the Japanese because Renault has a... a of more than 40% stake in Nissan, and but, but yet Nissan is the far larger company. They feel that this shareholding is unfair. Mm-hmm. So they feel that if you merge the companies, suddenly Renault will control Nissan. And the Japanese are, are proud of Nissan, and they don't want to be controlled by a French company who they see as smaller and inferior. And around this time, a compliance auditor began to raise concerns about Ghosn's behavior. And several Nissan executives, some of whom were also worried about the potential Renault takeover, started secretly doing some digging on Ghosn. According to Nissan insiders, they thought they discovered evidence that Ghosn's deferred compensation had risen to about $80 million dollars. The internal probe also discovered that Nissan was paying for Ghosn's houses around the world, including a rose-colored mansion in Lebanon that cost $15 million to purchase and renovate, with lavish decorations including two ancient sarcophagi embedded under a glass floor. Ghosn has since strongly denied that there was any wrongdoing. Nonetheless, these Nissan executives felt like there was something fishy going on and eventually handed over what they'd found to the Japanese authorities. And those authorities decided to go after Gon. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Welcome back. Once Japanese prosecutors looked at the material they'd gotten from Nissan, they decided to arrest Gon on suspicion he'd violated pay disclosure rules, which meant tracking down one of the most powerful men in Japan. He had been in Lebanon. There was a, a Nissan board meeting the next day. 
um, and he took a private jet to Haneda Airport in Tokyo and he landed on the tarmac and he was arrested inside the airport. And to show you how, how little he knew about um, this secret investigation, he, he was given a phone call and the phone call he made was to one of the executives who had been secretly investigating him. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what happened on that phone call? I think he was told to essentially speak to his lawyer. In addition to the charge of underreporting his compensation, prosecutors eventually filed more charges against Ghosn, including breach of trust, for allegedly using Nissan's money to cut deals that made Ghosn millions. And how does Carlos Ghosn respond to these charges? Well, he's denied all the charges. Um, he says that the compensation was not disclosed because it didn't need to be disclosed because it was all hypothetical. Nothing had been agreed and therefore how could he possibly disclose it in Nissan's financial statements? And he says that the breach of trust, uh, he also denies that, says that all the money was legitimately moved and was for Nissan's business, for legitimate business purposes. Um, he actually released a video statement back in April of last year to tell his side of the story. I'm innocent of all the charges that have been brought against me. And I'm also innocent of all the uh, accusation that came around these charges that uh, are all biased, taken out of context, twisted in a way to paint a personage of greed and a personage of dictatorship. And he essentially accused the Nissan executives of playing a dirty game. He called it a plot. Uh, he called it a conspiracy. This is about conspiracies. This is about backstabbing. That's what we're talking about. And why? He said that he'd been basically the victim of a coup and that all of these charges are trumped up. For the first part of 2019, Ghosn spent months in and out of jail. Eventually, he was let out on bail, and that bail came with rules. He had to stay in Japan, and if he left, he'd lose the whole bail amount. million. He was also only permitted to use the internet from his lawyer's office, and he wasn't supposed to have contact with his wife. To add to all of this, Ghosn's case faced long odds. More than 99% of indicted cases in Japan result in a conviction. Japan's legal system also gave investigators the right to interrogate Ghosn without a lawyer present, and Ghosn faced up to 15 years in prison. And that brings us back to a couple of weeks ago, in December of 2019, when Ghosn finally had enough. The breaking point was essentially a Christmas Day hearing. He petitioned the court to be able to see his wife over Christmas. Um, They had rejected it. And so he's been trying to fix a date for the trial. And at this hearing, the court said, um, actually, we might have to delay part of the trial another few months and put it further down the line. And apparently this was the breaking point because he doesn't believe that the Japanese actually want to go to trial. He thinks they're still looking for evidence because they don't have enough to convict him. And so he thought, well, if I'm not going to get a trial, I'm going to leave and try and get one in Lebanon or get one somewhere else to try and clear my name. Mm -hmm. How long do you think he'd been planning to escape? I think he'd been planning to escape for a long time, or at least looking at that possibility, right? He would have had a plan A, which was to defend himself in Japan, and then a plan B, maybe to escape. The team, essentially, who ended up getting him out, they were already looking at how to do this in the middle of last summer. And that's according to sources that we've spoken to. Mm-hmm. 
they'd hired a team, team of 10 to 15 people, um, different nationalities, and they had started scoping out at least 10 different airports in Japan. And in the end, a plan was ready. And I think Carlos Ghosn, as I said, made his final decision to, to do this around Christmas Day. The dramatic escape from Japan of one of the most famous auto executives in the world, Carlos Ghosn. Carlos Ghosn flew into Lebanon Monday, raising questions about how he avoided court-imposed restrictions on his movements. Sources seem baffled by this. What we do know... In a statement after his escape, Ghosn said, quote, I am now in Lebanon and will no longer be held hostage by a rigged Japanese justice system where guilt is presumed. He added that, quote, I have not fled justice. I have escaped injustice and political persecution. Japan, meanwhile, has vowed to tighten security and make it harder for defendants to escape. And Turkey charged five people with migrant smuggling as it investigates how Gon was able to pass through the airport undetected. What do you expect to happen in the coming days? So there's going to be a press conference uh, on Wednesday afternoon. I actually don't think he's going to speak about his escape at all. So I think he'll, he'll mostly speak about his treatment in Japan. But it will be the first time he's been seen in public since this incredible escape. So that's, I guess, what we're all waiting for. How likely overall, whether it's in Japan or in Lebanon, do you think it is that Carlos Ghosn will be brought to a trial? I think at this stage is unlikely. I mean... The thing is, he may not face trial, but he's in a spot now where he's very restricted, right? He's not living life the way he wants it. There's reporters standing outside his house. Um, He's got a security team around him the whole time because he's worried about his safety or being snatched back to Japan. He can't really go out in public. He's barely been out in public or not at all. Nobody's seen him out in public since this happened. Mm -hmm. So, yes, he's escaped the Japanese justice system, but is he really living, you know, a free life? No, he was probably more free in Tokyo, frankly. So is anybody going to come out a winner in all of this? I think nobody's winning in this affair. I think Carlos Ghosn is most definitely losing compared to a year and a half ago when he was, you know, running Fortune 500 companies. He's now an international fugitive. Nissan is certainly not winning because it's lost a third of its value. Renault is certainly not winning. It's also lost a third of its value. I think Japan is not winning because um, it's under a lot of scrutiny. So I I really think that there are, at the moment in this crazy story, there are no winners. In the lead-up to Ghosn's press conference this week, Japan has gone on the offensive. Japanese authorities issued an arrest warrant for Ghosn's wife on suspicion of perjury and called on Lebanon to help investigate Ghosn's escape. Nissan also released a statement, calling Ghosn's decision to escape, quote, extremely regrettable. That's all for today, Tuesday, January 7th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Special thanks to David Gautier-Villars, Mark Marymount, Sean McLean, and Rory Jones for their reporting on the story. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.